the hell is going on? What's really going on? We said, what the hell happened? You don't have to know what the hell is on it. They, they see what's going on. I don't know what's going on. What is going on? We must find out what is going on. Hi, I'm Danielle Pletka. And I'm Mark Deason. Welcome to our podcast, What the Hell is Going On? Mark, what the hell is going on? Peace in the Middle East. I know. I never thought we'd have this podcast. <laughs> you would ever think we would have a podcast on peace in the Middle East? It really is ridiculous. You know, people always ask me, so, you know, why did you get into the Middle East as a, as a region of study? And I always say, because it's a gift that keeps on giving. The problems there will never be solved. <laughs> But in fact, it shows. Sometimes they get solved. Absolutely, they do. Look, first of all, just for a housekeeping note, this is going to be the first of two podcasts on this subject because we have today the Israeli ambassador, Ron Dermer, who's joining us. And then on the next episode, we have the ambassadors of Bahrain and the UAE who are going to join us. So we have the three ambassadors from the three countries that have reached this historic deal, and it's going to be a pair of epic podcasts. So, you know, there's been a lot of arguing because in Washington, of course, even peace in the Middle East isn't something that people can agree is a good thing, at least not when Donald Trump is involved. (laughs) But I would add, second only to Bibi Netanyahu being involved. You are not exaggerating because Nancy Pelosi's response was, this is a distraction from the COVID pandemic. I mean, how deep must your Trump derangement be to have literally the most significant peace deal in a quarter deals to in a quarter century in the Middle East and oh it's just a distraction. Well, I, I will give credit to Vice President Biden who said something much more gracious in response. But in fact that graciousness didn't trickle down uh, because <laughs> what I have now heard repeatedly is well, just goes to show you Israel really doesn't care about democracy backing all these dictatorships in the Middle East. And it's like, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> wait, a, wait a second. <laughs> what? <laughs> is that Israel's fault? A and B, is peace not better than war? Is peace not better than terrorism? Look, I will be the first to say that I think the notion of a president being elected and then putting his son-in-law, who has previously only dealt with real estate, in charge of the Middle East peace process is, I thought it was completely ridiculous. He did a pretty good job. Look, you know, proof is in the pudding. And as much as I think many, probably me included, don't want to give credit for this, you, you have to. You have to. Look, three leaders, that picture on the White House lawn, of those flags together brought a tear to my eye. I love the image of the uh, foreign ministers of Bahrain and the UAE. There were three copies of each accord, one in English, one in Arabic, and one in Hebrew. And they actually put their names and their signatures on an accord written in Hebrew. That was a, I thought it was just a stunning moment. But I'll tell you, the reluctance to give credit is twofold. One, no one wants to give credit to Donald Trump for anything. But two... It's a repudiation of the the foreign policy establishment's view of how you deal with the Middle East for decades. We, I mean, we, you know, we were told uh, you have to go through Ramallah. There's not going to be ever going to be a separate peace with the Arabs. There has to be Palestinian peace first. We were told you can't move the embassy, U.S. embassy to Jerusalem. If you do that, that's going to be provocative. We were told that President Trump is going to destabilize the whole region by recognizing the Israeli sovereignty of the Golan Heights. 
all of the conventional wisdoms about what the path to peace was in the Middle East have been turned on their heads because the lesson of this is, this is something that Don Rumsfeld taught me years ago, weakness is provocative and strength is the best way towards peace. Osama bin Laden said something about the strong horse as well, not just Don Rumsfeld. <laughs> I'll tell you who else deserves credit for this, although not in the way that people are going to think, and that's Barack Obama. Because I think that Obama scared the Arab world so much with the JCPOA, the Iran deal, Mm -hmm. scared them so much that the United States was going to turn its back on, on the region, and they recognized that they needed to forge new alliances. They recognized that the world wasn't always going to look the way it did for the last 40 years, and maybe they ought to do something about it. And if Barack Obama hadn't made that craptastic deal with the Ayatollahs in Tehran, I think we'd still all be sort of, you know, dancing the two-step around each other. It really was a wake-up call to them. Not in a good way, but, you know, I will give him credit. I think that they wanted to take a new approach to the challenges that we face in the Middle East. The problem was that they took the wrong approach. They uh, inadvertently helped peace along. The decision by President Trump to pull out of Syria, the decision by President Trump to start pulling back some troops from Iraq, sent a signal, this is a theory, that sent a signal to the Arab world and the Persian Gulf allies that we're not going to be around to police the region quite as much, and that maybe they needed another ally in the uh, effort to do that. Do you think that Trump's pulling back and saying, we're going to end these endless wars and we're going to pull back some of our troops may have contributed to this agreement? I honestly don't know, but I'll say this. I don't believe that we keep troops in Iraq for the peace of Saudi Arabia or the United Arab Emirates, and I don't believe that we keep troops in Syria for the peace of Israel. You know what my view is. Look, you know where I stand on this, and we've talked about this many times on the podcast. I I was against the withdrawal from Syria. I'm against the withdrawal from Afghanistan. I'm against withdrawing troops from Iraq. We should be keeping them there. There are such low levels now that the added value of having a small deployment in those countries is huge. But... It also, you know, there's the famous Don Rumsfeld, one of the big mistakes we made in in Second Iraq. Don Rumsfeld <laughs> reference well, in one I, podcast. I know, I know. But one of the mistakes we made was that he, he famously said that at some point you got to take your hand off the bicycle seat, right? And we took the hand off the bicycle seat too soon in Iraq. But maybe Saudi Arabia and the UAE started realizing they had to pedal on their own a little bit. And I'm not saying that that justifies the actions. I'm just saying that it might have been an, an unintended effect, an intended effect, I don't know, but it might have had a role. It may have played a role. It may have been the negative example that the JCPOA was also mm-hmm. uh, to these guys, no matter what. In other words, American bungling made this possible. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, that, I mean, Churchill, Churchill did, did say something about that. But anyway, listen, we've had a terrific conversation with Israeli ambassador Ron Dermer. He has has worked with Bibi Netanyahu for many, many years. But since 2013, he has been the Israeli ambassador to the United States. This is actually his last year of of service. He's going to head home to Israel after a very long term and some terrific work. And if I have to say, he's really, really leaving on a high note. Enjoy the conversation. Ambassador Dermer, welcome to the podcast. 
Great to be with you, Mark. So the first Israeli-Arab peace agreement was 40 years ago. The second was 26 years ago, and then nothing happened for a quarter century. And all of a sudden, we have two in a matter of weeks. What happened? Well, I'm glad that you're talking about the historic significance of this, because you're right. It is the first time in a quarter century. And uh, we waited uh, 26 years between peace treaty number two and number three, and 29 days between three and four. And I think it speaks to a shift, a strategic shift in the region. And you can see it, Mark, in the way that countries and people in the region, governments and people, I should say, have responded to this peace. Go back 40 years, 1979, uh, Sadat makes, actually in 77, his historic decision to go to the Knesset, and the peace treaty was ultimately culminated and finalized in 1979. But think about how that was received in the Arab world. Wall-to-wall rejection among all the governments. Uh, Egypt was thrown out of the Arab League, and ultimately Sadat paid for that courageous decision with his life. Now, fast forward 40 years, and you see that Mohammed bin Zayed, the crown prince of uh, the Emirates, makes this uh, also, I think, courageous decision. But it is well received by most of the Arab governments in the region, and really by the people as well, because it's the piece that is not just from the top down, but I think potentially really from the bottom up. And we saw that on social media, within the Emirates, in Bahrain, and elsewhere. So what role do you think that the rise of Iran as a regional power, as a power really trying to destabilize, as a power with all these proxy armies everywhere in the region, played in this changing balance of the region? There was a silver lining to the very dark cloud of the nuclear deal with Iran, is that it brought uh, Israel and the Arab states together, probably unintentionally, but that's what it, it affected it had. Second, they are concerned, the Arab governments in our region, the rise of uh, Sunni fanatic movements. You have Shia radicalism, which is represented by the regime in Iran. And I should say, Israel doesn't have a problem with the people of Iran. I don't think the American people have a problem with the people of Iran. I don't think they represent a threat to anybody. But there's a regime that oppresses them and endangers the Arabs and calls for the destruction of Israel. So that's the Shia radical regime. But you have Sunni fanaticism. You had 1.0 in Al-Qaeda and 2.0 was ISIS, and there'll be a 3.0. And so these governments are concerned about that dual uh, extremist threat. And I think the third factor that's important before you get into, let's say, the statecraft of the Trump administration, which was critical here as well, is the perception that the United States is actually withdrawing from the region or at the very least reducing its military footprint in the region. No one is talking about sending more troops to the Middle East. And I think to the extent that there is a perception that the United States is going to reduce its military footprint, I think Israel's importance as a strong, reliable, powerful ally with a very, very strong military, certainly in regional terms, a world-class intelligence service, tremendous capabilities in cyber and other areas. So I think those governments in the region understand that the partnership with Israel becomes important strategically for them. So if you sum up, you have a, the concern of a, an Iranian tiger, a uh, ISIS leopard or whatever is going to come next, and the view that the 800-pound American gorilla is leaving the building. And they look around and they see a 250-pound gorilla with a kippah on uh, its head called the uh, Jewish State of Israel, and they think, well, you know, maybe we should, we should ally uh, with them. So one of the recent developments in the Middle East is the recognition that the Gulf economies need to diversify beyond oil. You know, Israel has emerged as a tech powerhouse. Do you think these countries see Israel as a possible tech partner and a partner in diversifying their economies? 
Remember, Israel is the second great center of innovation in the world after Silicon Valley. And to the extent that the Arab states have boycotted Israel, which was their traditional position, it's about as intelligent as uh, Oregon, Utah, Colorado, uh, Nevada, Arizona, New Mexico, and half of Southern California boycotting Silicon Valley. It makes no sense. And to the extent that you have leaders in the Arab world, I think you do, that would like to propel their countries forward in terms of technology, I think a partnership with this great center of innovation is very smart for them to do. So both for their, for their security and prosperity, a partnership with Israel is a very good thing. And I think that is the background to the breakthrough. And that's what has happened for several years underneath the surface. You've seen a strengthening of the relationship. The problem with surfacing it was essentially that for several decades, many of the governments in the region have poisoned their populations against Israel. And it's very hard after seven decades of poisoning to simply turn on a dime. And we were able, I think, to do it with the support and critical support, I should say, of the United States, of President Trump, Jared Kushner, uh, and the team that they had to figure out how we can surface what I think and bring the strategic underpinnings of this relationship, bring it to light. We're very pleased that we did it. And I suspect that you were going to see other countries follow as well. I'm pretty confident of that. Well, we want to talk to you about that as well. But, you know, there's so many things I want to ask you, and you've touched on really a lot of the important factors here. You know, the rise of Iran, obviously, Sunni extremism. But I'll tell you something. You know, I've been traveling both in Israel and in the Arab world now for four decades. And one thing that, that has been remarkable to me, not just in the places that have made peace with you, in the United Arab Emirates, in Bahrain, obviously, in Egypt and in Jordan, but elsewhere, for example, even in Saudi Arabia, is that antipathy towards Israel, towards its existence, and towards the Jews has in some ways dissipated, despite the fact that we still have all these terrible education systems that you mentioned, despite the fact that there's all of this indoctrination against Israel and all this anti-Semitism. What do you think that's about, that change? Is it just the distance from 48, or is there something else going on? I think it's part of it is a new generation and a very young generation, because last time I checked, about two-thirds of the populations in these states are under the age of 35, so they don't recall 48 or 67 or 73. Uh, 82 was, uh, of course, in, in Lebanon and in conflicts that we've had in recent years that many of these governments, because of their concerns with both Iran and with Sunni fanatic movements or the Muslim Brotherhood, per se, and when it came to the confrontation with Hezbollah in 2006, it, and that's in, in a proxy of Iran, the Hezbollah terror organization, which has effectively taken over Lebanon, but you could see also that they backed Israel when we were in a confrontation there. So I, there's this, a shifting that has happened, and I think some of those old things have dissipated. You were quite right in the media and the school system, it's still there. But if I, you know, if I have to go back to one factor, I actually think it's the Arab Spring. Uh, it seems like they from the moment I got involved in Middle East issues, I was hearing the same thing. You know, solve the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, you'll solve all the conflicts of the region. And in fact, I think it was in 2009, if I'm not mistaken, General Jones, who was the former National Security Advisor, said something that if it was a very bizarre analogy. It was He was God in the analogy, and he was telling Obama, if you could solve one problem in the Middle East, make it the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, because that's the problem that will you know, transform everything. And this view was very, as you know, was very prominent in Washington, and it was utter nonsense. 
I mean, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict should be solved because we shouldn't be in a conflict with the Palestinians, and we'd like to solve it and reach a peace agreement with them. But that's not going to change the situation in Libya or in Syria or in Iraq or in Yemen, where you have forces of modernity battling forces of medievalism. So what role do you think the Arab Spring played in all these changes? I think what happened is after the Arab Spring and the violence that happened in its wake and what happened in Libya and certainly what happened in Syria and the fact that you had this instability that was going throughout the region that along with the good things that it unleashed, there were many bad things that were unleashed and the fears of many of these governments for their own fundamental security. I think it puts the Israeli-Palestinian issue in perspective for people. People don't know this, but in the 100-year conflict between Israelis and Palestinians, the total number of people who have died on both sides, without even getting into the question of right and wrong, and it's clear that you know what my view is, but without getting into that question, the toll was about 22,000 people have died on both sides. In 100 years of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, in the Israeli-Arab conflict, if you had Israel, all of the soldiers who we've lost in the battles and all the conflicts that we've had with Egypt and Syria and Jordan, you name it. If you add it all together, it's 125,000. And the Israeli-Palestinian peace is 22,000 of that. Now compare that to what you've seen happen in recent years in the Middle East. We have half a million people in Syria. Look at the situation that's happening in Yemen and many other problems in the region. I think it puts that problem into perspective. I think it was, as I said, rise of Iran, rise of this fanaticism, a new generation that emerges there, maybe the power of social media to actually see the reality and to bypass the traditional sources of information. So if the normal media is still saying the same things, it doesn't mean that that's the information that everybody is getting. And I think a growing recognition that Israel is not an enemy, but an ally. Ambassador, that would be literally the only good thing about 2020, <laughs> if that happened. <laughs> but, but you well, know, you gotta, you have pandemics and peace. Yeah, as the prime minister said you know. at the White House on Tuesday, long after the pandemic is gone, the peace will endure. That's true. Well, listen, you, you've pointed out that these agreements have undone conventional wisdom in the Middle East, and it's not just that peace goes through Ramallah. I mean, John Kerry in 2016 said exactly that there'll be no separate peace with the Arabs as recently as 2016. But I mean, he also said said that if you move the U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem, it would create an absolute explosion in the region that would put peace out of reach. And we were told that if the Trump administration recognized Israeli sovereignty over the Golan Heights, it would undermine peace. And none of that has come to pass. I mean, what should we learn from that? Well, well, there was an explosion, I guess. It was explosion of peace. Why did this happen? And I hope people, you know, there's nothing more powerful. And what was wrong with the thinking that, you know, could this have happened sooner if we had taken a different approach? Yes, no question. No question, because the strategic reality was there. I don't think it could have happened two decades ago. I think in 2002, when you had the Arab Peace Initiative, I think the context of that was actually very different. It was right after 9-11. There was tremendous pressure on the Saudis at that time. And I think the context of that was a little bit different. If you ask people at that time if you could wave a magic wand and end the Arab-Israeli conflict, if you ask most of the, or the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, I should say, if you would ask most Arab governments a couple decades ago, I think the answer would have been no. And I think it served a, a purpose uh, for them. I think now, in the last several years, if you ask that question to Arab governments, if you could end the Israeli-Palestinian conflict by waving a magic wand, would you? And the answer would be yes. Now, the question is how you do that given the history of enmity and all of the kind of poisoning 
of the populations in the brainwashing you know, against Israel for so many decades. I mean, that is the challenge. But the strategic reality was there. And I think the Arab countries uh, understood that was not in their national interest to do, to essentially give dysfunctional Palestinian leadership veto power over their futures. The question not be, why did they do it in 2017? Why wasn't it done in 1950? You know, before the Oslo process, everyone links it to the peace and what's going to happen with peace. Well, that was started in 93. What happened in the four decades before when we made Jerusalem our capital? And it, it suggests or it implies that there's some question mark hanging over the legitimacy of Israel. And when Trump made the decision, he not only did you know, the right thing, but he did the right thing for peace. And we said it at the time that it was going to advance peace because it punctures this lie that Israel's some foreign colonialist power. It shows that Israel's legitimate and that we have a right, not just the might to be in the region, but the right to be in the region. And I think that decision in Jerusalem, no question, made it this, uh, this more likely. I think the decision in the Golan Heights made also the peace more likely. And frankly, I believe one of the things that people don't focus on, I think it was Israel and particularly the Prime Minister of Israel, Netanyahu's public decision to oppose the nuclear deal with Iran which dramatically, and I know this, it dramatically accelerated the relations we have beneath the surface with many countries in the region. That makes a lot of sense. So, you know, we're talking a lot about the Arabs. We're talking a lot about Israel. We're talking about the role of the United States. And you've touched on the question of the Palestinians. I just finished writing a piece about this, so it's right on the front of my mind. You know, I have to say that some have suggested in op-eds, people who I respect a lot, that, that this is an opportunity for the Palestinians. But to me, it just feels like history has passed them by, that they've missed opportunity after opportunity, and that so much of this, and I think the Arab states would agree privately, although not publicly, so much of this is on them. Unfair? Fair? What do you think? Look, ultimately, you know, there are people who believe that if Israel can end the Israeli-Arab conflict, that that will force the Palestinians to make peace with us. I don't believe that. I think you're going to have to have Palestinian leaders who will emerge, who will recognize that the Jewish state or the legitimacy and permanence of a nation state for the Jewish people in our region. That crossing of the psychological Rubicon has never happened. And people, I think, for decades got caught up in sideshows. You know, when the U.N. presented a partition resolution in 1947, there was no refugee issue. There was no post-67 settlements issue. Jerusalem was not even the issue because that was made, in, it, they said that would be under some sort of international regime. It was just, do you accept two states for two peoples, a Jewish state and an Arab state? They didn't call it Palestinian at the time. And the Arab world and the Palestinians, and particularly their very radical leadership at the time, refused to accept it because they were against the idea of a Jewish state in any boundary. And that's been the core of the conflict. And people have been running around trying to solve this conflict without looking at the core. So will this help forces within Palestinian society who would like to make peace with us? Will the ending, hopefully over time, of the Arab-Israeli conflict, will it empower those forces within Palestinian society who'd like to make peace ultimately with the state of Israel? I think it will. And I think it will marginalize the rejectionists because they've been arguing now for decades, really since Sadat. I think that if we're able to move forward with these Arab states, we could reach a situation where you could have a moderate leader that would emerge, that would recognize that, you know what, we are the children of Abraham, both of us, Jews and Muslims, and Jews and Arabs. 
We are descendants. We are actually native to the region. We are the, the last surviving people of the land. And the rejectionists have been saying for years, you know what, let's not do it. We have the entire Arab world behind us. But now the Arab states are crossing the Rubicon. And therefore, I think it won't necessarily end it on its own, but it will enable us to reach a point where Palestinian leadership can emerge in a regional environment within the Arab world and also the broader Muslim world, where an acceptance of Israel is okay. Not going to be facing a headwind, but they might get a tailwind. And I think that gives us the best chance to solve this conflict. Do you think we can get there as long as the regime of the Islamic Republic of Iran continues to stand? That's a very good question. I don't think breakthroughs you can have with Syria and or Lebanon, because Lebanon is effectively controlled by Iran, and of course Syria with the relationship they have with Iran and potentially Iraq, but virtually all the other countries, I think you could get there. Now, the Palestinians are not Shia. They don't have Shia minorities or majorities there. So is it possible to do it? It's a very good question. I think if tomorrow all of a sudden the Iranian regime disappeared, then there's no question that that will aid those forces of moderation and be a huge blow to the forces of medievalism in the region. Can it happen without them? I don't know because sometimes you know, common enemies obviously can bring people together. And I don't know if this would have happened the way it happened if Iran would have been a different country 10 or 20 years ago. I mean, the fact that they have this danger has really brought us to this point. And I think what we need to do, hopefully we'll reach a day where this regime is not running Iran, but that the Iranian people will actually run their own uh, and and determine their own uh, future. But I hope that before that day comes, uh, and I pray for it every day, but that we will be able to build bridges between Israel and the Arab world that will sustain themselves after that threat is removed. So at the ceremony, uh, one of the things I noticed I wanted to ask you about is that how significant was it that the UAE foreign minister delivered his remarks in Arabic? Because we've noticed here in in watching this issue that Palestinian leaders tend to say one thing in English and then another thing in Arabic for their domestic Many Arab leaders do that, actually. Yes, but but, yes. Right, even those who are warming up to Israel have have done that in the past. So they condemn violence in in English, but their language in Arabic is something else. And yet he he started out in English and he said, now I'm going to switch to Arabic. How significant was that? It's a good point. I mean, significant for me because it made it twice as long <laughs> sitting there, and I don't speak Arabic. But uh, I think he was, there's no question he was trying to speak to his public back home. And I give great credit to Mohammed bin Zayed and also to his brother for promoting this actively among the public. Remember, you don't, you know, in the case of Egypt and Jordan, look, a cold peace is definitely better than a hot war. And when Egypt made its move, we went from a hot war to, uh, to a cold peace. In the case of Jordan, which actually had a de facto relationship with Israel for about 25 years, since 1970, we went sort of from a cold war to a cold peace. But we would definitely want to have a warm peace. What has happened in those countries, in both Egypt and Jordan, unfortunately, is there are many political, economic, and cultural forces that militate against a warmer peace. And so if an Egyptian businessman or a Jordanian writer would make a positive deal with Israel or write something positive about Israel, all of a sudden you've got boycotts on your hands. Even though you formally have a peace agreement, which is, of course, better than the alternative, But here, I don't see those forces, either in the Emirates or in Bahrain, and in other parts, I think it's they're um, smaller, that are militating against this. And I think that bodes very well. And the fact that he spoke Arabic directly to his people, I think, is of a piece with that. And I think it's it's a good sign. 
And there's no question that this piece is both top-down and really pushing from the top and bottom-up. And we saw that in Israel a couple weeks ago, three weeks ago, I think, at this point, we had this historic flight. It's the first flight that, uh, from uh, Tel Aviv to Abu Dhabi, and you saw the reception that you had. And it's much broader than, you know, you can, a non-democratic regime can do a lot to make things look like it's warm. But this was genuinely warm, and you could see it on social media. You could see it with the public. People are very excited to have Israelis come there for be able to go from uh, the Gulf uh, uh, to Israel, the flying over of Saudi airspace, which I think is a very big deal. And it might be, uh, Daniela Mark, that you'll go to uh, Dubai in uh, a hotel in a year or two when we can all travel again, and you'll hear more Hebrew in the hotels there than you will Arabic. Or on your next visit to Tel Aviv, you're going to hear more Arabic from the Gulf than you will Hebrew. And I think that's why this moment... I think is a much bigger deal than people think because it is, as the prime minister said, a pivot of history. And well, we from your it. from your mouth to God's ears. Okay, here's my Inshallah. exit question. Inshallah, as Inshallah. I say. Amen. But <laughs> here's my here's my exit question, Ron. So you know we know that that let's say speculation is rife that Sudan uh, will be the next country to make peace with Israel. Maybe Oman. What about Saudi Arabia? Well, I don't want to speak about uh, any specific country because I want to do everything I can as ambassador to enable that peace to happen. I mean, one of the reasons I think this succeeded is because so few with the Emirates is so few people were aware of it, frankly. Mm-hmm. And it was very close hold. And, and this speculation creates a problem because things are half-baked and then they surface and then you get a lot of denials from a lot of people and then it just it makes it harder to actually cross over that bridge. No, that, ha- that happened with Sudan, I think, so I agree. There are, you know, Sudan, there's definitely been a shift there from a government that was working very closely with Iran, where we had uh, missiles being uh, delivered there and then making their way up through the Sinai and going to Gaza. And uh, with now a big shift of their policy vis-a-vis the Gulf, and they're in a different place. You, the prime minister met with the leader of uh, the government, uh, Burhan, not that long ago in a meeting that was made public afterwards. There are a lot of things that are happening with a lot of different countries. There's no question that Saudi Arabia would represent uh, a a dramatic step forward. But I think Bahrain tells you something about uh, the Saudi position. And I think uh, the fact that uh, airspace has now been opened up for Israeli planes uh, to fly to the east, not just on that one flight where the American senior officials, Jared Kushner and the National Security Advisor O'Brien was on that flight. On the return flight, they had allowed it to cross the airspace. And now they've opened their airspace for Israel to fly to the east. And that's very important for all countries in Asia. It cuts down the time for about three hours. But I think that that tells you something. And other thing uh, you may have noticed, you probably did, was a sermon very recently and one of the most important mosques in Saudi Arabia or in the world where positive things were said about Jews in that sermon. And I think this is a critical shift because I have believed for many, many years that we are not going to solve this problem by thinking that the secularists will defeat the religious. I think that's the wrong way to look at it. We will solve this problem when the devout spit out the fanatics. And when you have religious forces in the uh, Muslim world, and in particularly in Saudi Arabia, that have taken a different track. And this happened in recent years with the head of the Muslim World League. Yeah. He was in Washington. I don't know if you had a chance to meet with him. I saw him in Saudi Arabia and in Washington, right. as a matter of fact. 
So you know, I mean, this was inconceivable. I hate to use that word. <laughs> I've seen The Princess Bride, so I hate to see that word. But it was inconceivable that this would happen 10 or 15 years ago, but it's happening now. And people should look at it as leading indicators of what can happen in the future. And I hope that the policy community within Washington, and you both are in there, the, the policymaking community of the swamp we all live in, I hope that they will put aside a lot of the differences and the arguments and actually invest in success. Because this is a huge success, and I think there can be much more to come. And instead of having to face headwinds of a lot of bad ideas and bad policies, hopefully people will come together who care about the region and would like to see Israel at peace with all of our Arab neighbors and ultimately at peace with the Palestinians and understand the dangers that Iran poses. I hope they will to the extent possible, maybe harder for them to unite than the politicians in your politics, but maybe in that uh, world of think tanks, they can also unite and have policies that can be a bipartisan consensus to really take advantage of this historic moment and to give it a tailwind rather than to face the headwinds and the, and the difficulties that we've had to overcome in recent years. Well, Mr. Ambassador, I know you played a critical role in that historic achievement, and so we are so grateful for you to you for joining us today. Thank you for being here. And Shana Tova. Shana Tova. Thank you both. And uh, let's hope the next year we'll have no pandemic and a lot of peace. Amen. Amen to that. So, Danny, one thing we got, forgot to ask the ambassador about is uh, this controversy over the sale of F-35s to the UAE. It seems to have been part of the back-channel negotiations with the UAE over this over this deal. There was a big piece in the Washington Post that Israel is very concerned about it, that they oppose it. And uh, I don't know, is this going to go forward? What's happening? I think that the Emiratis probably rightly you know, thought, I'm sorry, we just made peace with you and you're opposing the sale of advanced fighter aircraft to us? You know, what the hell? But, you know, the Israelis... What the hell is going on? <laughs> what the hell is going on? But, <laughs> but, but the, look, the Israelis didn't get to the supreme military position they hold in the Middle East by uh, making mistakes or by underestimating what risks could be ahead. So, you know, I imagine they think to themselves, you know, what, what may be next? Uh, are there risks here? I, nonetheless, I think that that sale will go ahead. You know, probably a modified version of the F-35. That's what we've we've done in the past. And I can imagine to myself that this is probably going to happen. You think this is going to have a domino effect now that other countries are going to fall in line? I mean, there's rumors about Oman. There's rumors about Sudan. Uh, some have even said that maybe in a, if, a, if there's a second Trump term that, uh, that Saudi Arabia might normalize uh, relations with Israel. Do you think that's possible? You know, it's funny. I And in fact, I told the Israelis this. It, I was in Saudi Arabia, must have been two years ago on a particular trip. And we had a very nice guy from the foreign ministry who was looking after us. Uh, actually, no, from the royal court who was looking after us. And, and he was asking me about Israel because I used to live in Israel. Oh, what's it like? How is it? And I said, oh, you know, I'm telling him about it. And, uh, and I said, yeah, you know, yes. said, do you know Benjamin Netanyahu? And I said, yes, uh, I do. In fact, I interviewed him for AEI's annual dinner a few years back. Anyway, off we went. We continued the conversation. Next morning I came and he'd watched the entire interview on YouTube. And I got to say, for me, this was a guy who was 31 years old. For me, that was just like the dawn of a new day in Saudi Arabia. I think it's a harder sale to make. And I think that, uh, as we've discussed many times, uh, Hamad bin Salman, the, the young crown prince, has got a lot of enemies and made a lot of mistakes, in the, uh, certainly from the standpoint of the United States and, and some among his people and his neighbors. 
and I don't know if he he's, would be willing to take the risk. But yeah, maybe, and I could see it happening in four years. So here's an interesting question that I want to raise with the uh, Bahraini and UAE ambassadors uh, in our next episode, is that are they worried about a backlash from the, the Sunni radical movement? Uh, is this something that might now, the proximate cause of al-Qaeda's rise was uh, the presence of U.S. troops in Saudi Arabia. That's the excuse that they used, right, to justify their terrorism, that we had to drive the U.S. out of the out of the Middle East and all the rest of it. And the other proximate cause is hatred of Israel. These are the two driving forces for Islamic radicalism. Is there danger that, they, that al-Qaeda might use this or ISIS might use this uh, or other radical groups might use this as a pretext to rally followers and to attack these countries in response? Will they use it to rally followers? For sure. I mean, the Palestinians have already tried to do that. They rejected it and called out the betrayal that they faced from these Arab leaders. But I think the one thing, and this is another thing we didn't talk about with, with Ambassador Dermer, the one thing that we're not taking into account is just how um, adamantly these Gulf countries have declared war on Sunni radicalism. And of course, for them, it is personified okay, in al-Qaeda, okay, in ISIS, but most importantly, in the person of Recep Tayyip Erdogan Mm -hmm. in Turkey. And they don't miss an opportunity to lambaste these sort of twin pillars of extremism in the Middle East, right? Ankara on the one hand and Tehran on the other, the Sunni and the Shi faces of terror. And so... From that standpoint, I think they're ready for it. I think they're ready to take on that fight. When they declared, you know, the Muslim Brotherhood as a terrorist organization, when they declared Hezbollah as a a terrorist organization, I think they they crossed the Rubicon. Well, I think the one thing I take away from this is is that history has passed the Palestinian leadership by. Um, That their one source of power was that they held the keys to peace in the Middle East and that nothing could happen until uh, there was a peace deal made with the Palestinians and that was their leverage. And all of a sudden, basically, the Arab world has told them, yeah, whatever, we're moving on. They uh, have a choice. They can either completely isolate themselves or they can decide to change course and recognize the legitimacy of Israel and make real peace. And really, at this point, it doesn't matter because... They're not holding anything up in terms of the rest of the region. If they want to live in the conditions that they're in right now, that's their choice. If they want to have a Palestinian state, then that's their choice as well. Uh, but they don't hold any. They don't hold leverage anymore in terms of holding the whole region hostage. Yeah, but you know, I'll say this: just as we talked about a new generation in the Arab world that really has changed, I think that the Palestinians are victims of the kleptocratic dictatorial leadership of the last generation that they live under. Mm-hmm. You know, they've had Abu Mazen, Mahmoud Abbas, the Palestinian quote-unquote president, was elected in, in 2005 for a four-year term. He's still president. There hasn't been another election. He won't let another soul presume to lead. He, he's not grooming anybody. He has his sort of vice-like grip on power. And Hamas in Gaza, of course, is in the throes of, you know, is in Iran's thrall, totally dependent on them. At the end of the day, who is being screwed here? You know, the Israelis have moved on, the Emiratis have moved on, the Bahrainis have moved on. It's the Palestinians who are being screwed, just as they always are. And it is a tragedy for them. Well, I will tell you that when you look at the polling, for example, about support for suicide bombing in the Middle East, 
Almost nobody supports suicide bombing in almost any Arab country. The only ones where you have majority support for suicide bombing is in the Palestinian territories. So the now I'd be fascinated to see whether I haven't looked at those polls in like three or four years. But I'd be fascinated to see whether there's a reckoning within the Palestinian people that's saying maybe uh, what maybe we've been sold. Is not, maybe not terrorism doesn't pay. Maybe terrorism doesn't pay. Maybe the way to maybe what pays is diplomacy and peace. And uh, if I hope you're right and that a younger generation of Palestinians will learn a lesson from this, which is that your leaders have failed you. They've taken you down the wrong path, and it's time for you to rise up and take your create your country by taking your 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 territory back. God willing. Inshallah. Inshallah, mashallah, as they say. Uh, that's what that's what we're looking for. So. Um, a happy episode, and uh, uh, for our Jewish friends on the podcast, Shana Tova, and for everybody else, you can have a Shana Tova as well. <laughs> Send suggestions to us, complaints as always to Mark, and thanks for being with us. And our team here at AEI is Alexa Santry, Matt Winesett, Jen Moretta, and Macy Heath. Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at whatthehell at AEI.org. Or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at D. Pletka. And I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C. Please rate and review the podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe, share it, comment on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.